Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Nori Podcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change, and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon at the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Hey, Adam, thanks for being here. Hey, this is cool. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. This is Adam Minter on the line, scrap journalist and author of Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade, and Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, and also a writer at Bloomberg Opinion. I read both of these books at the recommendation of a mutual friend, acquaintance of ours, And I'm so glad I did because I never knew I would be so interested in trash, junk, scrap, whatever you want to call it. Thanks for uh, revealing this whole world to me, Adam. Well, it's, I mean, it's been fun and I'm just, I'm so glad you've enjoyed the books. Yeah, I sort of blew through them because there are just so many fascinating anecdotes about how this world works. And many of the stories I like digging into is basically anything in the world is interesting if you dig into with enough detail. Yes, definitely. Yeah, you share this opinion. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, since I since I was a child, I mean, that's one of the things you learn growing up in a scrapyard is that there's always something interesting in those barrels of plumbing scrap or electrical scrap or whatever else it is. So yeah, I mean, you just learn from a very early age to have that ethic of dig, and and it will be interesting. Absolutely, I, I'm glad you feel that way. I want to ask you, how exactly does one end up with a career like yours? Are you required to be born into it like you are? Uh, I feel like you occupy such a unique journalistic niche. So it certainly helps to have been born into the scrap industry, but it's it's not a requirement. I mean, my background, my family background is, you know, we're junk peddlers, we're junk dealers. My great-grandfather, Abe Leader, came over from Russia without any English, without any meaningful skills. And when he landed in Galveston, Texas, he had to do something. So he, he literally was a rag picker off the streets, picking pieces of fabric off the streets and selling them to paper mills to be made into paper. And, and over time, that grew into a small scrap metal business that he took up to Minneapolis. And that's what I grew up in. And a few things became obvious as I worked in the business. One was that the city of Minneapolis wanted our land. Um, so my future in the business was uncertain. Um, it also became clear that I wasn't necessarily the most talented of junk men. Um, I think maybe uh, after a few generations, that talent uh, sort of fades away. But I had also always liked writing. And so as, as it became clear that maybe I wasn't necessarily cut out for the scrap business, I thought, well, I like writing. I should become a journalist. But the funny thing is, is that, you know, I didn't really have any meaningful experiences that would appeal to any other publisher. So I, I did what I could do. And that was I pitched Scrap Magazine. 
which was at the time the largest trade magazine covering the recycling industry in the United States. And, and I figured, well, I'll do a few articles for them and then, you know, I'll find my way to the New Yorker. And, and seriously, and this was, you know, more than two decades ago. And, and it turned out, you know, that year after year, I'd keep saying that to myself and I kept doing more scrap journalism and it, and it became a, a career. There are now other scrap and recycling journalists. I think what made me unique, what maybe makes me unique is that I can go any anywhere in the world. And, you know, for instance, this most recent book, I was in Benin and uh, I can see people recycling and I can walk in there and they may be suspicious of me. But the moment I open my mouth and say, oh, I know what you're doing. My family did this. I know how to sort that metal. It changes the dynamic because it's, it is this business around the world that people don't necessarily... Um, you're not proud to say you're a junk man. So, you know, a reporter comes in and he says he does it too. He's probably not lying. And so that's, that's a, that's a, a point of, of commonality that allows me to go a little bit deeper. There is something that is pejorative just built into that word. I think of that scene from The Wedding Singer where, um, Julia Gulia is dating the uh, junk bond trader, right. introduces him as such. And he says, I don't tell people you're in junk waitressing. Right. That's, that's your life, basically, right? Yeah, you know, and it's it's pop culture. I mean, it completely, de you know, it's over and over. It, it it sort of turns its nose up at the business. I mean, the one that I've talked about lately in some of my public talks is Star Wars. And, you know, throughout Star Wars, every film has junkyards and junk traders. And uh, the last trilogy, Ray, you know, who's repeatedly referred to, you know, as as a scavenger, you know, as you know, as something to be ashamed of. And and so, yeah, it's it is it is a business throughout pop culture, throughout time. People have just sort of look down on it. Yeah. I mean, I guess where do you even start from when your grandfather came over and started being a, a rag picker, which you point this out in, in uh, I forget which book this is in, but people don't even know that being a rag picker was a thing. And I have to admit that I was reminded of the fact that this was a thing that existed, but I guess how did recycling as we come to see it now, how did it start out? And also if you're able to weave this in, I thought the ethnic component, I thought it was very interesting that Ashkenazi Jews were, were very involved in the uh, origination of this as a specific trade. How did this all come to be? Well, I mean, you know, recycling has existed, um, you know, for millennia. I mean, uh, anytime somebody melted down a piece of metal, a piece of bronze to make it into another piece of bronze, you know, uh, a sword to turn it into a plowshare, if you will, you know, there's been recycling. But recycling as we know it um, as an industrial process really emerged with the Industrial Revolution, you know, and suddenly people were consuming a lot more stuff, uh, producing a lot more stuff, and savvy entrepreneurs looked at all of that excess waste and said, maybe we can feed this back into our, our industrial processes. And so, you know, a, a lot of people are surprised to know, for example, the United States was importing in the 19th century scrap steel from the UK. The UK was very wealthy. It was throwing away a lot of steel. The US was importing it and turning it into railway ties to build the transcontinental railway. So uh, rag trading specifically started right at the dawn of, of the Industrial Revolution. Because, uh, you know, England was producing so much wool and uh, people were wearing out that wool. And suddenly people were trying to figure out, well, what do I do with that wool? What do I do with that cotton at home? And, and you know, they realized at least with the cotton, you could you could recycle it into paper, which is what my you know, grandfather was doing in the early 20th century in Galveston, Texas. So it's something that has always been there. And people sort of take it for granted. They don't often know that it's, it's a critical component of all of our industrial economies. I mean, 
in the United States, half of the steel used in the United States, much of which is used for the automotive industry, uh, comes from recycled resources, oftentimes from wow. recycled cars. You know, uh, you know, if you go to China, um, you know, well over uh, half of their paper supply comes from recycled resources. And they're not doing it because it's good for the environment. They're doing it because it's a cheap and easily accessible uh, raw material. Why did, you know, ethnic minorities like Ashkenazi Jews um, become involved in this? Well, it has always been the case in industrial economies, non-industrial economies, that, you know, ethnic minorities are not afforded the same economic opportunities that the majorities are, at least the favored groups, the groups that, that have access to capital. And and that has always been the case with junk. You know, I, I can say very few people in my experience have grown up saying, I really want to be a junk man or a junk woman. You know, it's something that you do because it's the entrepreneurial sort of opportunity of last resort. And so anywhere I go in the world, and I've reported all over the world on this trade, more often than not, it's usually ethnic minorities, outgroups who are doing it. I tell the story that I was in Japan many years ago, uh, writing a story about Japan's recycling industry, and I met with the Japan Iron and Steel Recycling Industry Association, the JISRI. And it was a very fun conversation. We spent an hour together. At the end of it, I just said to the board, I said, you know, because I'm always curious, I said, how did you guys get into the business? What's your family story? And what had been a very jovial conversation suddenly went dark and silent. And they said, well, we don't talk about it much, but, but we're all uh, ethnic Koreans. And if you know Japan, ethnic Koreans, a lot of them were brought over as slave labor around World War II, and they are a, a highly discriminated against group, and they continue to be the people who run a large component of the recycling industry there. And that, that could go for, you know, that situation exists for countries all over the world. Wow, that's very fascinating. What's especially surprising about this is that junk traders are often relatively wealthy. It seems like you, uh, well, you document a number of cases where people are shockingly well off from having participated in this trade. Yet it seems like dominant groups in society neglect it to their own economic uh, fate. Right. They would be better off if they adopted it in some ways. Right. I mean, it, the potential to make money in this industry and to, and to accumulate vast amounts of wealth is, is almost limitless. And I think one of the reasons why people are surprised about this is because they still look at it as garbage. Now, that's changing a little bit in some more affluent developed countries where we start talking about it as recycling. And then it, it sort of it gets this environmental shift and I don't know, people associate with Patagonia and the North Face and expensive apparel or something. But, but in reality, the recycling industry, if you grow up around it, if you work in it, what you quickly realize is, is that it's a, the raw material industry and it's just a competing raw material. And if you look at it from that point of view, is it really surprising that somebody, you know, that competes with steel mills, that competes with copper smelters, that competes with paper mills or, or Dow Chemical? to make plastics, that they would have the opportunity to create vast amounts of wealth. They don't always start that way. Uh, rarely do they. I mean, every large scrap business I've ever encountered can trace its way back to a peddler or somebody who is operating on a, on a very small scale. But because of what they do, you know, especially in growing economies, the opportunity to scale those businesses into quite large raw material supply businesses is, is, is really quite large. Yeah, I can't imagine that. Well, we might come back to the, the raw materials, the industrial side of things, but I think it might be helpful for people to wrap their heads around what happens on a more consumer-facing level. And your book, Secondhand, documents 
the story of Goodwill and how things work when, when you drop things off at Goodwill. And one of our uh, Nori podcast Patreon patrons, what a sentence that is, recently is in the process of selling her home and becoming an, an RV uh, nomad and has been uh, spending a lot of time at Goodwill, one could say. And uh, very curious to hear exactly how all of that works. And me too. I was fascinated by it. Uh, what happens if you give a shirt of, I don't know, what kind of quality? How do you even introduce this topic is so gigantic? Sorry, Adam, this is a big, big mushy question. Can you help me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had, the, you know, I, I wrote a book about it and I had the same problem. Like I was like, I know I want to go inside of a Goodwill and show what goes on in it. But then it's like, how does that fit into a wider narrative? <laughs> you know, it's as a writer and a reporter, it's, it's, it's like, it's that black box out there that nobody's really written about or shown a light on. And, and, and it's not easy. And, and Goodwill doesn't necessarily welcome, or not just Goodwill, Salvation Army or anybody else, welcome you into their uh, operations as would any other company to show you exactly how they do things. But for me, sort of the entry point was really very personal. It was something that I, you know, that everybody goes through. And that was, you know, the need to figure out what to do with my mother's things after she passed away several years ago. And my sister and I over time would, you know, we'd come into town and each of us would divvy up some of the stuff or take it to Goodwill. And then one weekend, uh, we were both in town and we said, we got to finish this job. It's been a couple of years of trying to figure out what to do with mom's stuff. And, and we got down to her China. And uh, my mom loved her China. Uh, my sister was living in New York. Uh, she didn't want to transport the China out to New York. I was living in Shanghai at the time. I didn't want to take the China to China. And so we sort of had this argument. You take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. And and finally, we decided we're going to take it to Goodwill. And as I'm, you know, waiting at the Goodwill drive-through donation site, I realized that's that's the way to write about this because it is a place that is a point of contact for, for at least in North America, for pretty much everyone. It's become, I call it the Kleenex of thrift, meaning, you know, we don't say tissue in the U.S., we say Kleenex. And when it's time to get rid of stuff, stuff, we, we say, let's take it to Goodwill, even though we may mean taking to the Salvation Army or some other thrift store. So that for me was the entry point is, is what happens to my mom's china. And it became for me, once I found a Goodwill uh, that was willing to let me basically just hang out in their warehouses for, for weeks at a time, uh, finding one that would let me in. And that was the Goodwill of Southern Arizona, which is a network of, I think it's 16 stores in the Tucson area. Just to back up, Goodwill, you know, many people think it's just this one giant entity. It is a giant entity in that it's a federation, but there are actually, there's a national office and then there are 140, I think it's 141 Goodwill federations around the United States and Canada. Canada that have their own territory and they are allowed to operate more or less how they want to. So, you know, what you say about one goodwill usually applies to others, but there's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be differences. So that sort of was my entry point is I wanted to know what happens to the stuff after they take mom's stuff or dad's stuff or grandma's stuff. Who wants it? You know, because for me, the central question uh, for a lot of my journalism around waste is ultimately what's the market? Who's going to buy this stuff? You can't pay people to take your garbage. You can pay people. People won't do it for free. You know, you uh, they have to have some financial incentive. So I wanted to know, in a sense, what are the financial incentives along the way? What makes this giant 140 federation, you know, operation work? That was kind of how I got into it. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. This is my potential failure as a host of just trying to find useful entry points in. 
I guess some of the stories I thought were really interesting that might be good bright lines for us to focus on. I thought the car seats in Mexico yeah. section was, was very interesting and also how clothes move yeah. and are discounted progressively. And then what happens to clothes that actually do not clear goodwill sure. to consumers. Sure. Maybe those are two good places to start. Sure. Well, let's talk about clothes. Clothes for me is super interesting for a number of reasons, but but probably the most important reason is Goodwill will tell you that it is the single most important item that goes through their stores. One, uh, because of volume and two, because of the value. And Goodwill is a nonprofit. They take the money that they earn from these clothes and use it to uh, basically fund job training programs. And so, you know, a big part of Goodwill staffing is related to those job training programs. And so they have a financial incentive to make sure they get every penny out of that blouse, that T-shirt. So what happens? Uh, you know, if I take a T-shirt and I drop it off at a Goodwill donation site, somebody is going to take that shirt and put it in a bin full of clothes that will then be, once it's... Uh, full, taken over to a group of sorters. And these sorters are trained people. They also usually have informational sheets, clipboards, whatever it is saying, you know, that almost have flow charts on them that will say, okay, this is this brand of shirt. And so long as it's in good condition, we will price it at say $2.99. If they find a problem with it, maybe it's, it hasn't been washed. Goodwill isn't going to wash it. You know, maybe if there's kind of a hole or it's, it's just, you know, anything like that, it may go into a bin that's set aside for a market that will pay less for it. So that could be within a, a Goodwill outlet store where stuff is sold by the pound, or it may be designated for immediate export. And there are markets that will buy the lower cost clothes. One of the interesting things that's happened with Goodwill recently is that they found that the overall quality of clothes coming through their doors and getting into the sorter's hands has actually declined. And we know this. I mean, as, as clothes become cheaper, they become cheaper. You know, something that might have I have like lasted. pairs of pants that have, have ripped off to like a single use. Their clothes do not seem like they are very sturdy these days. Right, right, exactly. I mean, you know, people have been joking, oh, they don't make them like they used to. But it's certifiably the case. I mean, if you talk to the Goodwill sorters, and these are some of the most fascinating and insightful people on, on American consumer habits that you will ever meet. I mean, they know everything about us. But they will say, you know, if you talk to them, you know, over the last two years, we're just seeing the stitching isn't as good. You know, the fabric, the thread count, you can feel it in your fingers. And, and I was just amazed, you know, when you spend time with these sorters, they'll pick up a garment and they'll feel it between their fingers. And, you know, they'll say, okay, this thread count is just so much lower than it was when we got the same brand six months ago. That's a problem for Goodwill um, because it means it's not going out usually to the sales floor where they make the most money. It's going to the outlet. You know, you can't export that stuff anymore. You can think, you know, there was a time maybe you could export the lower quality stuff to, you know, say West Africa or East Africa. They don't want it either. Um, so then that it becomes a cost for Goodwill. So maybe, you know, maybe they have to pay somebody who turns it into stuffing, you know, to take it. Goodwill will not landfill or incinerate clothes. They, they don't want to do that. But then it, they may have to pay somebody to take it off their hands. And so, so that becomes a real problem. And it's an ongoing problem for the organization. So, you know, but the preference really is to have things sell domestically. But on average, of the stuff that goes out onto a thrift store shelves, only about a third to 40% actually sells on that thrift store shelves. And then that stuff will be brought back into the warehouse and taken to 
outlet centers or sent directly abroad where there's hope that it will it will sell. So it's really a very complex market ecosystem. And, you know, they're always on their toes. Um, you know, in Tucson, the man who's in charge of, you know, selling to exporters, he showed me his, well, nobody has a Rolodex anymore. He showed me his uh, address book. It's filled with people, you know, from Pakistan and from Ghana and from, you know, Malaysia and from Indonesia. And these are people who are coming in to these goodwills or calling or emailing saying, I want to buy, you know, clothes from you that I can import into my, my market. You know, they all want different stuff. Uh, they all want a different mix. And that means that these goodwills need to stay on top of it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a business. Isn't it just terribly unethical to dump our excess clothing in these uh, West African markets, though, Adam? Is, is that, I mean, this is a common argument, but sure. is there something to that? Um, well, I, okay, I would, I would say that even the language itself is the wrong language to use. I, I, I have been covering recycling and secondhand for, for, you know, more than two decades, and I have yet to see anything ever dumped into West Africa. It's always imported. And, and I think the distinction is, is really, really important. One, to dump makes it sound like, well, you're looking for a garbage dump. Well, from an economic perspective, that makes no sense whatsoever. It's always going to be cheaper for somebody in the United States with, you know, with some of the lowest landfill costs in the world to go and dump the stuff in a landfill instead of spending, say, $5,000 to send a container of garbage um, from, say, New England to Tema, which is the uh, main port in, in Ghana. So, so in that sense, it just doesn't make economic sense. But the other thing is that stuff only goes there because somebody is paying for it. Nobody's paying for it to go over there. Um, they're paying to import it. And those are the people who are looking at it, you know, calling up Tucson, calling up someone in Boston and saying, I want this stuff for my market so I can resell it. So they're importing it. And so you, you then have to say, if you have to sort of flip the question and say, well, you know, if there's a guy in Accra, Ghana, who knows he has a market for secondhand clothes in Accra, that there are people who want to buy secondhand clothes from the United States, secondhand children's clothes, because they're considered better quality than what's available new in Ghana to begin with. And they're more affordable than that low quality stuff in Ghana. Then you have to say, well, is, is he doing something unethical by importing that stuff into Ghana? Is seeing an economic opportunity there? And I would say, um, he's not only doing something you know, he's doing something very ethical and the partner, his exporting partner, um, who is putting those clothes together for him, who would maybe not otherwise have somewhere else for, to send them is doing a good as well. So, so I wholesale and I've, I've written this, I wholesale reject the term dumping, uh, because I just don't think it's grounded in economic reality. Does that also hold true for things like what is typically deemed e-waste? Yeah. What, what even is that? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, again, it's, it's, you know, in, in many cases, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's more true, but yes, it's just as true. You know, what, that, some of probably the worst reporting, environmental reporting I've encountered in my career relates to this whole e-waste issue. And, and, you know, we all know, uh, what we're talking about. If I say the words together, e-waste Africa. Your listeners immediately have an image of probably young black men stoking fires fueled by bundles of wire. And um, almost certainly, they may not know this, that picture uh, was taken in a large dump in Accra, Ghana called Agbagbloshi. You know, the people who go and do these stories don't spend much time in Ghana. Uh, it's very easy to go to Agbagbloshi. And if you go there, you will see electronics. Um, you'll see wires and, and maybe some, you know, plastic cases being set on fire. But, you know, you have to ask where that stuff's coming from. 
And it's not coming off the boats, carrying containers of electronics into a craw. That's not what beans burn there. That What that stuff is, and you have to go and actually hunt it out, is that's the stuff that's been in a Kragana for 20 years, and finally it can't be recycled and reused anymore. What the stuff is that's coming into Ghana now and into Nigeria and into even some of it's still going into China or Indonesia or Malaysia, where I live, is reusable, repairable electronics. And that makes sense because, again, why would you pay... You know, I'm just thinking of one trader I know, $5,000 to ship a container of old computer monitors from Boston to Accra. And then you got to spend another five to $6,000 on taxes getting them in. And why would anybody tax garbage in the first place if there's, you know, if there's no value there? Uh, the value there is that this is low cost stuff that's considered better than what's available in the local markets to begin with. It's massively pre-tested. That's another way to look at used. Instead of calling it used, just call it massively pre-tested. And, and it's at a great price point that works for people. And even if it's broken, the skill level of the repair community in Ghana and West Africa is extremely high. And so they want to import this stuff because, you know, if say you have a broken iPhone, I don't know, in Kansas City, you maybe will sell that for, you know, $10. And I've seen these transactions take place to a West African trader who will then bring it to West Africa and he will take it to his repair guy. And it's all guys. The repair, repair in West Africa is guys for reason which I won't go into right now. And they, they're able to add some value to it. It's a working iPhone and they'll sell it for $100. I mean, those are killer margins and that's why that stuff flows. <laughs> Is one of the concerns that people have that some of these tasks involve opening up uh, electrical components that have things like uh, mercury or other noxious chemicals and there's just not adequate protection for employees. I guess this is true for all sorts of the uh, quote unquote recycling industry in China and other places that these things only happen over there <laughs> rather than in the United States because we have tougher environmental regulations and it's too costly. So we export it so that people with less protections, it costs less and they internalize those costs of, uh, of our consumption habits. Is right. that like, a, a, like the fair charitable way to state this case? No, it's no. not. Okay. So um, I've done, I've done a bad job. <laughs> you know, it's not, um, I mean with electronics, I mean the number one reason that electronics move into emerging markets is because people want to reuse them. You know, new stuff is expensive. Used stuff is less expensive. And, uh, if they are not being exported for reuse, they're being exported for parts. So you may have uh, a phone that's beyond saving, but I guarantee you there's a chip or some parts in it uh, that somebody can pull out and they will use that for the repair of a phone that's already in these markets. And if you go to West Africa, if you go to Africa in particular, you know, the, the people who repair stuff will say their number one bottleneck is getting parts, you know, and so how do they get parts? Well, they import broken stuff and then they harvest the parts out of them. So, I mean, that's what's driving this trade. On the recycling end, you know, never mind the actual stuff, but if we're talking about recyclables, things that are no longer stuff, and I realize this gets metaphysical, but stuff that we would classify as recycling, and it's, it's a gray line, the reason that stuff moved over is because it's raw materials, you know, and it's a cheaper raw material. And, and if it's coming from a developed country, the quality of that recycling tends to be very high. You know, that's a funny concept to people who aren't in the business, but, you know, the recycling the paper that's manufactured in a place like China and the cardboard manufactured in China for the China market tends to be a very low quality. And one of the reasons is, is because it it's uses a lot of recycled content. 
And the more recycled content you put in your paper or your metal tends to bring it down in quality. Whereas in the US is just, or Japan, we use a lot of new stuff. And so that makes it highly sought by recyclers. So, you know, for them, it's a way to help make new stuff. So, you know, I, I, this, this notion that, you know, we can't afford to do it, you know, in the U.S., I think the better question to be asking again, and I, I always encourage people to think about recycling in raw material terms is why are we exporting raw materials to China? Why are we exporting parts to Ghana? And, you know, when you start asking those questions, I think, you know, I think you get better answers. I mean, the reason why you would export raw materials to China is because you have more raw materials at home than you can use. And and that's true. I mean, the U.S. uses a lot of its recycling. About two thirds of what's generated as a recyclable in the U.S. is recycled in the U.S. But then you still have that one third. Um, and so you can either landfill it or you can find somebody who wants to buy it. And, and for a lot of years, China was a very willing buyer. Um, they've decided that they want to start using more of their own domestic stuff. So they're not doing that anymore. So now we're seeing, you know, a change. Who's buying that stuff from the U.S.? People are always surprised, you know, ones who, who use that terminology dump. You know, uh, the U.S. is dumping, it's recycling. Well, Canada is now one of the top two importers of American recycling. Well, are you telling me that, you know, the uh, American recyclers are dumping on Toronto? I don't think so. Well, why is Toronto, why is Canada importing it? Well, they're importing it because it's a raw material they can use. And likewise, the U.S. will import recycling from Canada because there are certain grades of recycling that Canada has, maybe in precious metals or whatever that, that we can't import. So, so that, that to me is, is the, is the reference the frame of reference at which I, by which I look at this stuff. I have it on very good authority, though, Adam, that the United States is dumping unsafe car seats for children into Mexico. Can you come? <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking, too. Uh, so car seats. This is, this is an interesting story. It's sort of a, a story about journalism, too. When I was at the Goodwill of Southern Arizona in Nogales, Arizona, which is just across the border from Nogales, Mexico, I saw car seats being auctioned off to people in Mexico who were bringing them over as wholesalers and reselling them. And as a parent, you know, flashing red lights went off because if you're a parent, you are indoctrinated quite early that used car seats are unsafe. They have expirations on the backs of them and they must, uh, they must be destroyed lest somebody who is reckless or maybe doesn't know better uses them and, and kills a child. Um, you know, with this unsafe used car seat. So I was deeply concerned. I thought this was deeply unethical. And so I, I went home and I discussed it with my wife and she's like, well, you should at least find out what they're doing. And maybe that's a great story about Goodwill doing something horrible. And I went and I looked and it turns out that there are no federal laws against using used car seats. There are no even federal guidelines on used car seats. And I did some more reporting and, and I found some people on background who were authoritative on how the US government manages these things and and they said they said there's there's um one of two possibilities why there's these expiration dates in these campaigns one um they're just trying to keep themselves from getting sued or two it's a marketing scheme which I thought was was very interesting you know it wasn't enough for me uh, uh, to write about so then I started contacting uh, car seat manufacturers asking them if they could just please tell me how they determine how a car seat expires you know do they work with the plastics manufacturers I only I only got out of the 10 largest car seat manufacturers on the planet, only uh, two responded to me and only one responded directly to the questions about how they determine these expiration dates. And that answer was no comment. 
So then I, I sort of found myself at a crossroads and, and I started calling around to some other countries. I got to Sweden and, and Sweden actually has some of the world's best automotive safety regulations. Um, and they also have some very good insurers who want to see children kept safe because they don't want to pay out. And, and after contacting them, they made it clear to me that they've done testing there on used car seats. They've held on to car seats over time to see how they degrade and they don't. And so what, what became apparent to me was two things. One, you know, marketing is everything. And no, you know, and, and we've seen this before that manufacturers can be hostile to recycled products because they compete with new ones. But it was also a reminder to me, uh, you know, it's a, a sort of an entrepreneurial reminder. Um, that the things that we may very well consider waste um, are going to be valuable to people and valuable in other places and other countries and valuable in ways that maybe we don't appreciate. Um, in Mexico, car seats are very expensive as they are here. And so a used car seat is an affordable way for somebody to protect their child. You know, it may be a stretch for somebody to buy a car there in the first place. Then if you have a large family and in Mexico, they do have large families um, to afford car seats for all those kids is not easy. So if you can get one for 10, 15, percent of the cost, you know, that's a pretty good deal. And so it's it, it gets back to this theme that's been important in my work is, you know, that you shouldn't assume your definition of waste is is the the definition of waste that everybody else embraces. And so that was really sort of the the parable and, and the lesson of the car seats is is that there is value in these things and, and you just have to look for it and you have to look at how that value is sometimes manipulated uh, for marketing purposes. One of the phrases I use when I approached you about doing this show was that it unveils a world of quotidian miracles. What should people do listening? Um, I know you focus on reuse being so much um, better than recycling, and that's why it's first in the triad. Right. But what does what should someone do who's listening, who cares about? I imagine people listening try not to waste uh, nearly as much as they might otherwise do. They probably recycle more than, than average. This is an environmental climate podcast. You know the audience. What should they care about? What shouldn't they care about? Um, well, okay. Let me start with what uh, they shouldn't care about is they shouldn't care about stuff being exported. Um, you know, and I think there's become this real phobia, um, especially in North America about, you know, exporting our used stuff, our recyclables. And, and the bottom line is, is that if somebody is importing your used stuff, um, that's somebody who wants it, who wants to use it. And they're not taking it away um, from a higher value in North America. I mean, they're creating the higher value because if they they're buying it means that somebody in the U.S. Uh, doesn't want it as badly or doesn't want it at all. Clothing is a is you know a great example of that. I mean, um, the U.S. generates so much excess used clothing, and if it didn't go overseas, there would just be nowhere for it to go. Um, nobody's paying for it. Remember, it's not nobody's. You know, Goodwill doesn't pay for it to go overseas. It's it's like Amazon. Somebody somebody in Indonesia is saying, okay, I'll take a container load of that, and yes, I will pay the shipping. That's how it works. They're doing it because they have a higher use for it. Somebody wants to reuse it, and and reuse is a is is really important. And so I, I wouldn't have the phobia about about export or import, however you want. It, it, it makes sure that that stuff gets used for as long as possible. And for me, as somebody who cares a lot about climate change, I mean, we know the number one impact that most products have on the environment happens during the manufacturing stage. So if something... Um, including the climate impact. And so if somebody can keep using something, that means there's less climate impact, you know, because you don't have to manufacture um, as much stuff. You know, on, on what we should do. I mean, you know, I'm not one to to preach at people, and 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 I'm always reluctant to do it. But I will say, and I think we all know this, 
is, you know, the buying less ultimately is, is, you know, from a zero impact lifestyle, I mean, buying less stuff is really important. So yes, you know, shop secondhand if you can. But, you know, if everybody is shopping secondhand sooner or later, everything is going to wear out. And it's just not realistic anyway. I mean, then we're going to be left with no stuff. And so I, I always recommend to people, look, if you're going to buy something, buy the durable product. You know, and, and this is what I've done. And, and really writing this book had a huge impact upon me personally, because if you go to where I went and saw all of this stuff just piling up, you realize there's, you know, at least a large percentage of it not usable because it's just cheap stuff. It, it makes an impact. And so for me personally, you know, when we buy something, when my family buys something, we try and buy something better. Buy that better quality pair of shorts. Um, men's clothing is very hard to buy secondhand because um, if you talk to the thrift stores, they'll tell you men wear their clothes very hard. So there just isn't much coming in. So I bought a new pair of shorts the other day um, and I bought a better pair of shorts. Uh, I'm not going to name the brand, but it's just it's, <laughs> the fabric's better. The, the thread count is higher. Stitching's better. I'm cognizant of the fact that that's a privilege. Um, not everybody can pay a little bit extra, you know, and so I'm always reluctant to recommend that to people. But for me, personally, as somebody who can, I look at it as, look, this pair of shorts is going to last me longer. You know, if at some point I decide to donate it or somebody decides to donate my shorts, I'm pretty confident that this pair of shorts will have another life. It will keep lasting. And so all of us are going to buy new stuff. You know, we're going to continue buying it. That's just the nature of civilization at this point. But buy that better stuff, you know, and if you're buying better stuff, if you're, you know, that better stuff is taking more out of your bank account. I mean, it means you're buying less stuff. That's not the only reason to do it, you know, but obviously we all want to be buying less. Um, but if you are buying, you know, buy with a aim to the secondhand market. And that isn't as crazy as it sounds. I mean, if you've ever bought a car, most people, you know, middle-class people who buy cars say, okay, I'm buying this car. What's the resale value going to be? What am I going to get for a trade-in, you know, in seven years? You know, I, I think that's a really good way to be thinking and, and, and being a modern, environmentally-minded consumer. What happens to the countries and entrepreneurs that are importing uh, American waste if there's just less waste? Obviously, it's, the price will, will go up and they'll have less available. But what is their next best option to reusing American waste? What would happen? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, right now, uh, you know, the global economy is changing very quickly. And so I'm going to speak to this, you know, as a pre-COVID moment. But, you know, one thing I was seeing in West Africa over um, during my reporting for this last book, and, and I've since confirmed it's still going on, is you are seeing more and more uh, Chinese junk, more and more Chinese stuff, more and more Chinese recycling mm -hmm. being exported out of China into Africa. And so you see Chinese used clothes, for example, competing with American and European and not in Africa, uh, but in other parts of the world, Japanese used clothes, which tend to be a very high quality. And so, you know, what's what's going to be interesting to see happen is as these you know, these emerging economies that have developed so rapidly and so significantly over the last 20 years, as they really adopt I don't want to say American style consumption, but sort of modern consumption patterns. Um, they will be creating the supply. The question is these, these very countries that are now creating the supply, the excess junk, they, they are needing to import less and less of it. And so I think what we may be facing and, and we'll really have to see how it plays out over the next few years is an excess of 
secondary materials, as they would be called in the industry, you know, whether it be recyclables or used clothing or used computers. And I think you're going to see probably more and more of that stuff being recycled or landfilled. We may look back upon sort of this era of globalization as, as a golden age of recycling, especially of, of reuse, because I think one thing we're going to be grappling with over the next few years after COVID is that everybody's going to want new stuff. I like new stuff. I don't know about you, but I mean, it's cool to get used stuff, but I mean, there's just something about opening it. You know, there's a reason there's unboxing videos, you know, and, and a lot of people around the world are getting their first chance to, you know, unbox something for the first time themselves. And so it's going to be a challenge for the, the current traders. What do they do to hedge? Are there financial instruments like there are in other commodities markets? Oh, sure. Sure. So the big, the big recycling traders and, and by big, I mean, you're, you know, talking tens of thousands of tons, uh, say of aluminum and there's different grades of aluminum scrap or copper or whatever. They actually do hedge. They will hedge their positions you know, using futures contracts. <laughs> Is that available for for different types of clothing grades, or is that not? Financialized? I, you know, I, I asked about that, and and, and the person I asked about it, um, looked at me like I was absolutely insane. So um, no, <laughs> why is that any more insane than pork bellies right. or uh, aluminum? Well, know. you know, the, the interesting thing is about it's it's not. You know what I mean? Um, it, it really isn't. But what what's what is interesting about the used clothing trade is it's a massive trade. And yet it has stayed very, very, it still is, it's very massive, but you haven't seen large consolidations uh, within it, you know, so that you would have the kind of volumes where you could see creating a hedging, a contract. You know what I mean? It's still a lot of trader to trader. And even when you have organizations as big as Goodwill, you know, as I said earlier, it's the various federations that will trade their stuff. I mean, theoretically, if Goodwill, the international organization decided we want to work with somebody to create a, a clothing trading hedge, they could do it, but that's just not how they function. And so it's a huge trade, but it's this massive trade that still happens, you know, on almost like a container by container basis. And I guess it just hasn't scaled in a way that justifies those contracts yet. Okay. That, that makes sense. Buying durable products, um, advice that you uh, have given somewhat reluctantly, you may even be even more reluctant to give more specific advice, but where do you even look? Because I, I think a lot of the products that I even have access to that think about buying, they're just not always that well made. Where can people even look for this sort of thing? You can. I mean, um, you, you can look for it. And, and I mean, you know, you just start uh, you know, the Google machine, if you will, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, looking up durable uh, men's clothing, if you Google that, you, you're going to start finding some brands. Uh, you know, Consumer Reports is a really interesting tool because they really do try and help their members. It's a member-based subscription, you know, find products that will have the lowest cost of ownership. And that's particularly important when you're buying things like appliances. And, you know, as you know, from reading the book, I, I'm very interested in washing machines because, you know, we've talked about the declining quality of, of clothing, but appliances too, we know have declined in quality uh, for years. And we have good consumer survey research on this and good warranty information. And, you know, we have my grandmother, you know, her washing machine, <laughs> you know, it last, that thing lasted for two decades and didn't need a repair. And anybody who's tried to buy a clothes washer in recent years knows that, you know, it's exceedingly difficult to buy a machine that's going to, you know, uh, last you five years without repairs, much less 20. But there is in fact, you know, 
at least one brand out there, and I write about them in the book, I'm not afraid to mention them, is Speed Queen. They basically build their home machines like commercial laundry machines. And commercial laundry machines, a laundromat is going to want a low cost of ownership. They don't want to be repairing those machines. So if you if you take your commercial laundry machine and put it in the home, you're going to have a very durable machine that's going to last a long time. But, you know, so I, I found Speed Queen and I went and visited them and they they were really helpful to me in, in laying out this case. But I can also say it took me a long time to find companies that would that were you know sort of doing things that way much less would let me in the door but you know you just you just kind of have to search for them and there are clothing brands that do make a better quality you know t-shirt there are brands that will stitch your jeans better and 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 you can find them you can search for them it's it's out there I wonder if this is just the way that consumer brains work with the discount rate where people tend to just care about the immediate price. They care about that more than some future price because that's distant. Who knows if it'll ever arrive, even though it most certainly will. Just our psychology works that way. And there was a great Planet Money, I think, or maybe it was Freakonomics episode uh, some years back about how all of the incredibly unbundled airlines um, where you basically just pay for like the smallest seat and have to pay even for water and every upgrade are among the most profitable airlines, but people uh, rate them the lowest. And I think that's a great illustration of this where you're just like, oh, this other washing machine is an extra $300. But why, why can't you just take into account that that thing will last an extra decade? Uh, right. It just doesn't work with our brains. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And yet I think there are some shifts happening. You know, I think the used car lot and its relationship to the dealership, you know, a new dealership is is a really interesting relationship. And I think we're seeing it pop up in other products. I mean, you know, the way it traditionally works is, okay, I've driven this car for, you know, how many years or how many miles I want to trade it in and buy a new one. And so you take it to the dealership, they have a used car lot, they offer you a price and you take it and then you get a discount on your new one. And so that's, that's why, you know, you have things like Kelly's Blue Book, you know, and you have sites out there that are telling, you know, consumers are very keenly interested to know what their used car is worth. And I, and it, for a long time, it was really only cars where we were thinking that way. But here and there, we're starting to see it pop up in other products. The most obvious is in smartphones and some electronics. You can go to an Apple store now, trade in your phone and get a discount on your new phone. And, and it works exactly like a used car lot. They will appraise it uh, for you right there, tell you what it's worth based upon, you know, if the screen is scratched up or whatever. Now, given that's a more valuable product, you know, than uh, say the flashlight that's sitting on my desk next to me, you know, but, but it then by, the psychology then becomes over time, the consumer is going to be saying, hey, wait a second, this phone has some value. This used phone has some value. Maybe my next one I should be buying with that value in mind in the way that we have always been doing uh, with cars, at least for decades and decades. And, it, and now it's not just, you know, phones where we're seeing people are starting to realize there's value, you know, in the secondary market. We're starting to see it with apparel, which surprised me. And, and uh, Patagonia, which is it's expensive stuff, um, but they are an outdoor brand that makes very high quality clothes. They have a program called Warnware. And what that is, is it's basically the used stuff 
that people have brought to them that they have bought back using store credit. They won't pay cash for it, but you'll get a little something off it and you'll, you know, you'll probably feel good because you've recycled, you know, or, or reused your stuff and, and Patagonia will, you know, repair some of it, clean some of it up and, and they will sell it in their stores, which is, you know, which is really to me is kind of a revolutionary consumer moment where you have, you know, a high end apparel maker, um, selling used versions of its stuff. And, and they, and they will say, if you talk to them and I've talked to them, they're, they're very upfront about it. They said, you know, one, it's, it's, you know, environmental, but two, you know, from our point of view, it, it gives people you know, like a college student, a lower price point to enter our brand and become a regular customer, which sounds an awful lot like a used car lot, you know, and, and we know over the course of the pandemic, but it started before then that, you know, secondhand clothing trading away from eBay sites devoted specifically to trading secondhand clothes out of people's closets are doing extremely well. Poshmark is one as well. You know, again, I think it's, you know, it's probably still at the margins of our consumer society, but I at least think that you do have certain kinds of consumers starting to think about certain kinds of products with total cost of ownership and mind. I mean, again, we're not at the point where it is with cars, but I think I think at least in some quadrants, probably more than quadrants, but you're starting to see that shift. But of course, I mean, these are you know major shifts in consumer thinking and it's it's still as you've said, I mean, it's it's that price that's in front of you that more often than not matters most. What do you think of those shows? I guess they it's been a while since I've seen them, but um there's like American Pickers, Pawn Stars, these um uh, I guess American road shows, like the the great granddaddy of them all. Right. Uh, Antiques Roadshow, yeah. Yeah, Antiques Roadshow, there you go. What influence did that have on on the waste or junk industry? You know, not as much as you would think. The big influence on the industry over the last, say, three decades was eBay. That that changed a lot because all of a sudden people found out that these things they thought were really scarce, there's 17 of them on sale right now on eBay. In the Antiques Roadshow and these other uh, shows sort of just kind of, a, you know, they served as sort of color to the black and white image that eBay was presenting. So they, they haven't had as big an influence as, as many people might have assumed they had. The real shift in the market came when online you know, sale of secondhand really started in the late 90s. And then these have just sort of followed along on, on that trend. Um, Speaking personally, I mean, I, I love Antiques Roadshow. My grandmother and I used to watch it. We were, we would, you know, she took me to thrift stores, you know, when I was very in garage sales as a very small kid. So, you know, when we weren't going to garage sales and thrift stores as much anymore, we could sit around and watch that. And guess what, you know, that lampshade is going to be worth. So it was a lot of fun for us. But ultimately, then, you know, you go onto eBay and, and, and see if you can find that stuff. In general, eBay was not great for the stuff industry, the antique stores, because it did take away some of the pricing power. You know, with all that price transparency, um, you, you just couldn't charge some of those outrageous prices for, you know, what we call collectibles anymore. I had a change in my psychology about this recently. Secondhand definitely did this for me where I began looking for, oh, I also read a book called uh, Meet the Frugal Woods. I don't know if you, you know those folks. No, I don't. I'm not a fan. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're financial bloggers and they're, they're like super minimalistic, frugal as the name implies. And they try to get everything uh, free or extremely discounted and, and do a lot of garage sales and thrift shops and that whole thing. And I stopped at a garage sale in my neighborhood and spent like 20 minutes negotiating over this fairly nice wooden toolbox. And we couldn't come to an agreement over $5. So I, I offered 10, she offered 20, came down to 15. I just couldn't do it. 
But then I can also log on to Amazon and find products that are vetted by hundreds, thousands of people say, this thing is good or this thing is crap. And then I can decide and it'll ship to me very quickly. Or I can delay the shipping and get free money for Kindle, like eBooks or movies. And like, it's hard to compete with like that amount of e-commerce ease versus the like messy system of <laughs> like finding like a one-off product in a store or from someone on the street. I don't know. What, what do I need to become a proper junk man? Because I feel like Amazon has really spoiled my brain for it. Right. I, I, I keep asking myself that question. I've been asked various versions of this question in the past. I mean, in some sense, like all I can do is, is really speak to my own experiences. And that is like, I grew up around this stuff. Um, and yet I appreciated convenience and Amazon as much as the next person. What really shifted things for me was having to do two home cleanouts um, of relatives who had passed away. This is a, a grimmer answer than probably you wanted, but having to go through somebody's accumulated belongings over decades, it shifts how you think about stuff. I mean, you, you just start to see, you know, I, I, it, it hit me, you know, along the way, especially with my mom's stuff. It's like, you know, none of this stuff that I'm keeping and protecting in desk drawers or whatever it is, is going to mean a, a thing to anybody once I'm gone. I mean, your stuff just doesn't matter. And then, you know, I went out on, you know, for this book, I, you know, I spent a lot of time going out on home cleanouts with home cleanout services, both in, in uh, Minnesota and then also in Tokyo uh, is two places where this business is growing very rapidly because you have rapidly aging societies and, and populations and and you know seeing other people go through this process and and children of, of elderly parents who are downsizing or passed away having to realize that their parents stuff that they you know curated so carefully doesn't matter it suddenly takes away some of, of, of the fun of being a materialist and shopping on Amazon and it was interesting to me and very striking you know, I would get to know some of these home cleanout people I spent time with. And, and to a person, they all said um, the same thing. You know, I've really become a minimalist. And the other thing that a couple of them brought up, they said, when I go to weddings, the two of them said the same thing to me. They said, when I go to weddings, I don't buy off the registry anymore. I'm not buying the china. I'm not buying the linens. I'm not buying whatever it is on the registry. You know, I'll, I'll buy them a gift certificate for a, a really nice restaurant or, you know, if, or, or buy them a couple days in the hotel if that's on the registry for their honeymoon or, you know, help pay for the tickets, you know, to get to or, or to Thailand or wherever it is. But I'm not buying them stuff that their kids are going to have to clean out at some point. And I think that kind of thinking. It's not very fun. And that kind of experience is definitely not fun. But I think you know, for me, and talking to people who've read this book, I think those kinds of experiences and thinking about what's accumulated in our homes and in our parents' homes in particular, helps to shift habits away from you know wanting to click everything on Amazon. <laughs> that's that's a, a grim answer, but it's, 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 it's really sort of where I've finally come down on this. The specter of death being a cure to uh, to materialism. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm. It's probably not the answer you're looking for, but really, it's the one where I, you know when I've seen people really reduce their consumption, it's when they've been around needing to down people who have downsized. You know, and it may not be because of death; it may be because they're moving into a 55 plus housing complex, but they've still got to get rid of this stuff that they thought they were going to keep forever, and and there's nowhere for it to go. You know, you got to donate it. Nobody wants it. Your kids don't want it. Your kids don't want your stuff. So what are you going to do with it? And that that really does um, make an impression upon people. It's been weird for for me because my parents recently moved and in the process, by the way, just moving in general, you realize how much oh, crap yeah. you have that you don't want. And like, why did I keep this? That's universal, right? That's just everybody. No doubt about it. 
No doubt about it. Yeah, they've been um, so they've been been working at their you know lifetime accumulation of tchotchkes. Um, I've gotten a fair number of my childhood mementos sent out to me, which I will keep in my basement until I die. Right. <laughs> probably. Right. Uh, and then my kids will have to figure that out. But I'm not sure if anyone listening out there has been going through this too. But if you're older and have kids, or you have parents who are are thinking about this, there's sort of a like a like a pre-death process of yeah. beginning to clean out that has become fashionable. Like I've heard it from both sets of parents from my, my wife's parents and mine too, about like not wanting to have to trouble you guys when, when that happens. And that's, that's weird. I, I think it's, it's quite common now though. You document some of these services that ease this along. Yeah, it, it is common. And I, I, you know, I think the psychology, I mean, this is a, it's a really interesting thing I found just talking to my friends, uh, again, grim topic, but going into your grandparents' house while they're still alive or go to your parents' house and saying, oh man, one of these days I'm going to have to deal with that cabinet, <laughs> you know? And that that kind of thinking I think is becoming more pervasive. And, you know, there was the Swedish death cleaning book a few years ago. I don't know if you saw that. We, Swedish oh, yeah, death I've cleaning is basically, you know, it's, it's the same thing. This, this idea and these emotions associated with it and the practicality associated with it, I think are, are starting to circulate around the culture. I really do believe that. I mean, you know, without doing, you know, some really intricate consumer surveys, I don't, you know, there's no way to pinpoint it, but just talking to people, reporting the scene, what businesses are being created. I think there is something sort of brewing out there. And I have a feeling COVID may have accelerated some of these thoughts just because people have been staying home and cleaning out closets. And I have to think it has some kind of consumer impact down the line, but we'll have to see. Yeah. Is there a great secondhand market for Hummels? Is that what those things are called? Those yeah, weird little <laughs> not <laughs> anymore. Uh, and that was interesting, you know, uh, uh, Hummels, yeah, the, these uh, German porcelains usually of children, quite intricate, beautifully painted, if that's your thing. It's not my thing, but it, it may be somebody's thing. And and there was a period of time where these Hummels, uh, you go to any antique store, any flea market of any worth in the United States, and they would be going for three, four, five hundred dollars And who's buying them? Uh, the people buying them are retirees. Their kids are out of the house. They finally got some cash, you know, in their pocket that they can go and spend, you know, that kind of money on a Hummel. And so they drove the market. Um, and they love these things, you know, that was their thing. But, but the people who love the Hummels are going and gone now. And so the, the market for Hummels has collapsed. And so if you go into antique stores now, that Hummel that went for $30 at one point, I mean, they're, they're struggling to give them away for 50%. You know, you, you see them in the double digit pricing. So, you know, and, and where will they be? 10 years from now, 50 years from now, who knows? Maybe somebody will see that there's something truly great in these mass market collectibles. Mass market collectible is kind of an irony, if you ask me. But right now, it doesn't seem like it's there, you know? And we've seen this happen in other markets. I mean, the Beanie Baby one is is the, the notorious one. I mean, the people who really love the Beanie Babies grew out of them very, very quickly in that market crash. So, you know, again, it's this idea that we have things stored in our home that are worth something, you know, they're worth something, you know, they're, they're worth sentimental value. They're worth something to you. But odds are almost nothing in our homes has any value beyond the raw materials. Uh, when you look at the really big market in the sky, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one word for it. Yeah. yeah. Once one of my grandparents died, there was hullabaloo in the family because there was discovered a large stash of milk glass which I think that was heavily overstated the value of that. Right. <laughs> 
everyone's like, oh, this is this will be a nice little little financial bonus. Like this is nice to find. Is it possible they got anything for that, or do they probably have to pay someone to take that out of there? They probably, I mean, probably they got uh, probably got something out of it. But you know, I mean, it's interesting if you talk to people at like these antique markets, and they'll say, you know, every day somebody's coming in saying, oh, I've got this thing that's a hundred years old. You know, and they they always say that's the worst part. You know, and as soon as they say it's a hundred years old, they assume it's worth something, and and it's almost you know it's almost an immediately tip that it's not worth something. You know, just because it's a hundred years old doesn't mean anything, you know, and, and a lot of these collectibles from a hundred years ago, I mean, uh, you know, they were included in a sack of flour to get you to buy the sack of flour. How many sacks of flour were sold? It was a mass market product. It was a Hot Wheels. And there's just, there just isn't any residual value there. It's, there's only so many Mona Lisas. Well, hopefully if one grandparent died and they had a house full of mid-century modern furniture. Well, there you go. That's that's the jackpot, I think. Right now it is, yeah. Oh man, but yeah, it's fun. But but it's it. funny because my grandmother lived. She was a great collector of art glass, and she loved that stuff. And she was alive uh, for when the mid-century thing first started, and she thought it was just the most bizarre thing. Who would want to buy that? You know, that was the that was the mass market stuff of her childhood. And why on earth would anybody spend money on that? And I remember being at antique stores with her and she would just scoff at it showing up. You know, I, re- I regret I didn't buy some at the time. You know, we could have made some real money 10 years old. <laughs> what, how does, maybe this is beyond your can or, or maybe you've seen these trends for long enough to know, but what determines when something comes back in that kind of way? Will Hummels have a have a comeback? Is there any way to predict this at all or is it just totally random? You know, you know what you can predict is that the collectibles market is driven by nostalgia and nostalgia tends to be based in people's childhoods. And so like uh, you see a lot of toys from the 1970s and early 1980s getting hot now in antique flea markets. And why is that? It's because Gen X is, is in its peak earning years. They have some money and they're feeling nostalgic for their childhood. You know, I can't say for the life of me why Hummels, you know, uh, that post-World War II generation in the United States, why they would be sentimental or nostalgic for German figurines of the 1920s and 30s beyond me. So I don't know. I, I don't think I can explain all of it. But one thing you can definitely bank on, it's been the case since World War II, is people wanted to buy memories of their childhoods. And, you know, once they reach those peak earning years, they're buying them. That's what's driving um, a lot of the collectibles market. You know, with mid-century modern, I, it's, you know, the people who are ch- children then, they're not buying that stuff. So I don't know. It's probably different in furniture, but but the collectibles, you definitely can, you can pretty much graph it, you know, as people want to buy the toys and, and some of the knickknacks from their childhood. I'm trying to think about what, the first thing I thought of was pogs. Is there going to become a period where I want to buy expensive pogs? <laughs> is that going to happen to me, Adam? Yeah, maybe it will. I mean, you know, I, who would have guessed, I don't know, like Battlestar Galactica action sets from the 1970s would be selling for, you know, hundreds of dollars uh, in antique stores. So who knows? You know, it's... Oh, man, that's going to be that's going to be weird. OK, I'll keep that in mind. Well, we covered so much stuff here, both from a more institutional, industrial, high level, all the way down to what consumers deal with, both selling, buying, and beyond. Is there anything that we left out that might be might be worth covering? Or are you pretty content? I, I feel pretty good about it. I mean, uh, you certainly have a lot to work with. Yeah, but I just thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I'm really happy we, we got to have you come on and do this. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Tell your friends and thank you so much for listening. 
Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com, where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.